am here to talk about something we you don't often talk about on this uh, channel, uh, but it is a bigger issue, I think, than uh, people realize. As the author of the book, In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities. Uh, so I'm here with Davarian Baldwin. He's a professor at Trinity College. He's the author of several books, but the most recent is this one, In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower. And Davarian, thank you for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I uh, I was saying before we turn the mics on that this book is so overdue, um, and I think there's probably hunger for it um, among uh, university people because what we hear is so much, we get so much just corporate PR about how everything is so good and what the university is doing is so good. And, you know, we all kind of sense that there's something uh, pretty sordid going on <laughs> underneath the surface, mm. and mm -hmm. that it has something to do with real estate and and uh, and urban development. But you, um, through your case studies and through the whole book, that this is what you you sell, spell it out and like really explain it. So, um, first of all, thank you. But second of all, yeah, can you talk like how are universities plundering our cities? Because that's yeah. just a great word. <laughs> it's just such a great <laughs> phrase. Yeah. How does how does that happen? How does that work? Yeah. So so first, we just have to understand. I think some people I think we know it kind of implicitly, but no one ever says it out loud. Um, colleges and universities are the biggest employers, real estate owners, healthcare providers, and even policing agents in major cities and college towns all throughout North America. And on one level, we have to acknowledge that, that these schools, they bring ideas and people together and they generate new innovations as we see in the press you spoke about. Um, yeah. But what we rarely talk about is that there is also a cost to those living in the shadows of these ivory towers because campus expansions also raise housing costs and displace residents in neighborhoods largely in the U.S. of color that largely surround campuses, and in the Canada, largely working-class neighborhoods. Yeah. Um, campus police forces, they surveil and profile the same residents and are yeah. rarely held to public account. And then higher education's broad control over labor can lower wage ceilings and suppress collective bargaining, bargaining efforts. So in the end, schools are setting the housing costs and land values, the wage ceilings, the healthcare standards and the policing priorities for whole cities. And so this book tells the story of higher education's growing control um, over um, economic development or, and urban governance, or what I call the rise of universe cities. Right. And so that's the basic premise. Right. And so, um, okay, you know, each of these things is, is, um, is important to to talk about, but really, I think the core of it, or at least you know, the first thing you mentioned, and and the, the driver in a lot of ways is land prices and real estate, and mm. and you talk about, I mean, the the business model of universities now is uh, basically it's a financial arrangement where they are trying to squeeze as much tuition out of a student as possible, and the student gets money from their families there. Uh, expected to, um, you know, draw their family's resources. And then, of course, they're expected to go into debt. Mm -hmm. And it's like a careful calibration of like how much debt this, the student can bear 
mm. uh, over their entire lifetime. Right. Um, that the bank and the university somehow make this arrangement for mm. for this for the student to kind of indenture themselves, and then, um, but like, so you know, if that's the that's the core of like the business model in in one sense, but there's a lot going on with the university land and the university real estate business. Can you talk a bit about like what that looks like? Sure. So you're totally right that the major model here is kind of debt financialization. Mm -hmm. And we talk about like from the U.S., uh, you know, the current numbers have us at about one point five trillion dollars that students collectively hold, um, you know, creating debt, which is, I think, more than everything. But like credit card debt. Um, all other forms of debt are lower than student student. Uh, oh, tuition. is it even higher than mortgage? Or is yeah, mortgage I think a at this account? point, I think at this point, it is higher oh than mortgage God. right now. Um, so that's the model, but it extends out beyond student tuition dollars. Um, it's debt financialization also structures how universities make money in terms of land land control, um, which is something that we rarely talk enough about. These uh, um, uh, campus expansions are real estate projects. Um, and the reason why this is able to function in the way that it does is because institutions of higher education are um, presumed to serve a public good. And this is most clearly marked by their 501c3 property tax exempt status. So right. the point here is that because they are nonprofits and they presume to offer services otherwise performed or offered by the government, they um, have nonprofit status and in in, which is clearest in the status of it's not a, it's tax exempt property holdings right and this was fine um you know decades ago when university property was primarily organized around um dorms and laboratories you know yeah. for you know for for student for student teaching yeah but when we talk about but we have to put in the converse context here the rise of the knowledge economy in mm-hmm. throughout North America. And what that is, is primarily the point at which um, uh, academic research um, is being used to create profitable commercial goods or patents in a range of fields from pharmaceutical industries and software products to military defense weaponry. Right. And this was made possible by the Bayh-Dole Act of 1980. Whereby before all university research was primarily being uh, uh, government funded, but because it was government funded, it had to remain in the public domain. But right. a bunch yeah. of uh, universities got together and lobbied to say that even though this research is being financed by the people, yeah. by government dollars, we want to turn it into intellectual property. And so right. when that Buy Doll Act got passed, you had schools all over the all over North America creating these technology transfer departments right. that then would take faculty and student research and development, package it into intellectual property, and sell it on the market to the highest bidder. And the money would come back to the university in the form of royalties, sometimes in the multi millions of dollars. But it's and still the, it's still pretty small compared to tuition money and these real estate games that they play. I I gather. Is well, that, it, it is, but the, I'm giving you this background to understand yeah. how the the expansions now move. So then, as these expansions take place, mm-hmm. these campus expansions, it's not about expanding classrooms and yeah, teaching yeah. teaching spaces. These it's about these these uh, uh, fa- uh, university buildings as knowledge factories. Yeah. So because academic research is being used to create this money, you have, the key to this whole knowledge economy is recruiting the best students, faculty, and their families 
to do this knowledge work. And you have to create this urban cluster of housing, retail, and nightlife. Yeah. And so these variously called innovation districts or knowledge communities, they're sitting right in the middle of what have been impoverished communities surrounding campuses. And so this is what's going on here is that these land deals are going on. And then this is creating, yeah. what you mentioned before about debt financialization, whole industries are being supported. So even if they're not making money, yeah. even if these land deals are making money, it's producing wealth for construction companies, right. for, develop, and, for developers. And it's creating this hype that makes mm-hmm. a, a bubble, which is ideal right. for financialization. So it's that, like this that's hype right. that we're creating this this innovative city and we're sexing mm-hmm. up the city. But like it's also, um, like you were saying, uh, the the hype of it also has to do with like the, the dark side or the flip side of the hype about how we're going to do all these great things mm-hmm. through the city. Uh, is that the the propaganda always starts by really demonizing the the sometimes quite functional working mm-hmm. class or culture that this that existed in these parts of the city that the university covets, right? Yeah, a, a, a primary or reoccurring observation that I heard when I talked to administrators all over the all over the country is this kind of manifest destiny analysis that yeah. um, wherever they are attempting to expand, there was nothing there. Yeah, yeah, as a blank uh, or it's a or it's like Rasa, failed a blank slate, a failed community, a failed community, or like it's crim, it's full of crime, or right, it's, uh, you Bl- know, or bl- and, blighted to use the real estate term, yeah, right? blighted, yeah. Mm-hmm. So they they set these things up so that they can, you know, by by trying to, they they can't really make themselves look as good as they want without making what's already there look really bad. And, and, the, to, uh, and, the, and the unspoken story here, especially what I found in the case at Columbia University in Harlem, is that the neighborhoods they're targeting for, for uh, expansion that they're calling blighted, many times they already hold the majority of the land control in that area. Uh, and they're sitting on it and just simply land banking, waiting to gain control of the rest of the area or waiting for uh, real estate values to rise so they can flip the land and sell it to developers or build on it. So the very yeah. blight that, that they're that they're uh, uh, deriding is actually created in some in many cases by their own means of holding onto the land and doing no development for the communities that already live there. Right. Or the flip side is probably potentially that the the land value rises because of things that values created in the community. That's and right. Then, and then the university comes to destroy those things, mm-hmm. uh, which and, is and, like, and, I, that was your opening story, right? Like, right. You, you, yeah. Do you want to, do you want to just tell a little bit about that opening? Um... Well, really quickly before I do that, I just want to okay. point out, and we can talk about this in later in more detail, yeah. but the, the understory, this is because these schools are nonprofits and yeah. because their land is a uh, uh, tax, property tax exempt, all these for profit endeavors are happening yeah on tax-exempt land without any public oversight or public benefit. So the taxes that would normally come from this land are not going to the things they would normally help in the public good, which is like snow removal, trash removal, road road maintenance, secondary secondary schools development. So this is actually an extractive model. So even if this land is not making a bunch of innovation or research money, the financial arrangements helps bring millions of dollars into the school for the tax abate on the tax abatement. 
<laughs> yeah, it's well, it's like all these municipalities competing to try to get Amazon to come, right? And and their competition, they're they're saying it's going to bring all this to the community, but but they negotiate away all the benefits <laughs> before they even you know in order to get Amazon there, and so mm-hmm. when Amazon ends up getting everything, and the the campuses seem to be no different. That's now, right. um, the 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 other. You know, Chris Newfeld, have you ever read? Yep, you must sure. have read. Yep. Yeah. So he he talks about like the the public universities and how they're in like a tuition trap, which we see happening all over Canada, too, where mm-hmm. he calls it the tuition trap where you cut public funding uh, to subsidize tuition and then you raise tuition, which shows uh, the public that you don't need the public money anymore. Right. And so you just continuously raise tuition. Right. And so um, I, I spent a whole chapter talking about a lot of my cases are private universities, but I do talk about public universities as well. And the key, the key case I talk about here is Arizona State University. Yes. And like other public schools, um, yeah. you know, I talked to the president there and, and he was brought to Arizona from Columbia uh, because he had presided over something called the Earth Institute um, oh. in, in New York, where he was known for um, uh, monetizing academic research and development. Yeah. He was considered to be entrepreneur, an entrepreneurial academic. This is, the, this is the phrase they actually use, all right? right? And he's celebrated for being an entrepreneurial academic. And what that meant at the Earth Institute was they were speculating on futures and future financial goods that could be created with academic research um, to prepare for moon colonization, right? Oh. So <laughs> I thought the Earth Institute, I mean, I applied, you know, Devarian, I applied when I finished my PhD to to do a postdoc at the Earth Institute. Mm. And I thought, because I, you know, I'm an environmental uh, right. person. I thought the Earth, in- you're saying, now are you saying that the Earth Institute isn't even about the Earth? Well, part of it is, but another part of it is about using the Earth as a case study for future minan- financialization and monetization, oh, um, you know, in, in space. Right. Yeah. So that's part of the story. Like, if we can develop product for sustainability, how can these be used to get ahead of the game on what's going to be another kind of land speculation if we engage in, you know, uh, 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 space travel? Are we gonna, we're not going to talk or, about or moon, So that's another story. But anyway, <laughs> so anyway, he got he got brought to ASU because of the kind of work he was doing at the Earth Institute and other kind of work because he was known for bringing academic research to market or, or, or having yeah. that orientation. And so he talked to me at length about the fact that, listen, you know, uh, public schools at one time, their, their budget was, was you know, uh, 60%, 70% government funded. Right. It's gone down now to 20 or 30%. Yeah. Yeah. We have no other um, alternative but to get out here and create other markets, produce other markets. And so, you know, I am sympathetic to that reality that these schools are lands are 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 financially strapped. These I mean, schools. I understand it, but it's also like it, it it it's an admission that you see the university as a business with different lines, as mm-hmm. opposed to like we're here to teach people things and. Uh, you know, if if we can't do that, then we're not a university anymore. Let's That's just, right. You know, right. <laughs> let's, let's liquidate our assets and get into, I don't know, mm-hmm. <laughs> forestry or something. Right. I don't know. That's right. Um, there was one other point uh, about like, the, you know, you, you, you talk a lot about like Richard Florida and mm. the, the creative city. Richard Florida being this theorist mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, the future of the city is uh, this creative class. And, right. And, you know, there, there's like a there's like a progressive as as with lots of these things, there's like a progressive uh, 
I don't know, appearance to it because he's saying like if you're more tolerant of LGBTQ, right. if you're more, you know, open minded, then then you'll also benefit economically. But on the other hand, it's also um again, like it becomes this anti anti-people uh mm-hmm. thing because it's like like you were that you were you were quoting them saying you know we're trying to attract the best people right and that itself is like this attitude uh created by um you know the universities in some ways like the best what is the best person mm-hmm. right it's like right. it's got a little bit of eugenics in it it's got a little bit of racism in it mm-hmm. and it's got a whole lot of like classism and credentialism uh in that in that whole idea right like for sure he's the best and just to point point out he is the he is the uh, director of the prosperity institute Mm. at u toronto so he's in your he's your he's he's oh here (laughs) (laughs) just down the street but yeah Yeah. toronto has i mean we have all of those like we all we have tech transfer we have these entrepreneurial programs Mm -hmm. and innovation programs and all Mm -hmm. that stuff it's like entrepreneurial entrepreneurs are gonna are gonna and spin-offs, right? Like, That's right. And, 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 and it's it's, a, yeah. it's interesting to see how innovation has become just simply synonymous with entrepreneurialism. Like yeah. those, those, that's all. Those it's become a you know a interchangeable term. Yeah, and that There's doesn't no... have to be that way. Yeah, exactly. Like we can't innovate in you know how to care for the elderly better. Right, or, you right, know. right. And so. nonprofit oriented or nonprofit driven orientation. That's it's it's almost become um, an impossibility to think of it in that way. And so, yeah, Richard Florida, just to point out, as you point, as you, as you said, um, he got a lot of traction of, you know, about 10, 15 years ago around his notion of the creative class, the creative city yeah. that, and this was created and he was at University of Pittsburgh when he, when he dealt yeah. with this. And it was a perfect case study because, you know, what do you do in a world without factories? You yeah. know, we saw with the global South, not really post-industrialization, but de-industrialization in the U.S. and North and, and, and Canada, that yeah. industry had moved to the global South. Yeah. And so what's going to be the new industry? What's going to be, how are we going to, you know, these, these rust belt cities, how are they going to recover, you know, uh, places like Chicago, Winnipeg, Pittsburgh, you know, other places, how are they going to recover um, without a strong industrial base? And he said, listen, if you build it, they will come. That if you, you build riverfront, you know, landscapes and walkability and density and, and, and you fully wire it and you make it more tolerant, uh, yeah. You know, the, the knowledge workers, we talked about the knowledge economy, you know, what do you, you know, the, the, the knowledge workers, those who do, who work in tech, who work in design, who work in yeah. fashion, the, the, the new industries of this deindustrial age. <laughs> if you create an, an urban environment that's attractive to them, they will come and industry will follow. Right. Yeah. And so he, his, his, his um, consulting firm Catalytics, they were able to offer, you know, to charge a $250,000 consulting fee to these cities that were hungry for solutions on how to revitalize their cities in this way. So cities all over the country um, um, and, all, and all over North America, to be honest, and he's, he, he's actually gone global. He's been in Australia and Europe um, still <laughs> um, have, have paid this fee for um, Richard Florida to go in and talk about how to redesign their cities to attract this creative class. Um, but in years, it's immediately when he started talking about these things, there were critics that were like, wait a minute, you know, <laughs> you're creating these financial and prosperity bubbles in the middle yeah. of impoverished neighborhoods and cities where basically you're just you're refocusing development and investment in a targeted, concentrated way. Yeah. And that's succeeding to the to the to the detriment of everyone else that surrounds this little wealth and prosperity island. 
And, and what, one way or another, it's coming from the public, uh, you know, public financial resources, right? That's like right. So these public-private yeah. partnerships yeah. are being created, which basically means public money to support private investment, private industry. Um, and so, you know, the critic critics were very strong and and and, and you know, um, insistent on this on this uh, deprivation, this disparity. And he did end up writing a book that acknowledged that, yeah, in certain ways, this prosperity and targeted investment actually has a hand in increasing disparity. And in, in my part of the story is that these spaces that he's talking about are actually what we call campuses, whether it's the university yeah. campus or it's the Amazon campus or it's the Google campus. Um, this is what we're talking, these this re- retrofitted neighborhood environments are campuses or they're, or they're like a campus environment. And so for him, and he also acknowledges that the university is a driving fo- function of this knowledge economy. And so for me, I'm saying, well, these universities are, you know, extremely underwritten by public dollars Um, and and, and their claims are to be offering educational services. But if their primary function is to facilitate capital in this new economy, then we need to be open and honest about what's going on here and what needs to happen. And then, you know, whatever, if if you want to be capitalist about it, then they should have to compete with whatever other businesses are out there instead of being protected by their tax exemptions and their all the things they claim to be doing. That's right. And that's what I'm saying is that if you want to be a a private, you know, for profit industry or capitalist enterprise, then we need to engage you in that way. Let's 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 be clear. We look at the past, like with with Enron and other companies, we haven't done a great job overseeing private capital capital as well. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) But (laughs) at least, at least we would be more honest about what's going on. And for me, because my focus is on communities, urban communities, these communities could engage with them in a more honest and robust way. And that's where I'm talking. That's where I'm coming from. Yeah, because, you know, like I see your book as like a lot of uh, just debunking a lot of this hype, you know, Mm. because it's just so much hype and it's so much self-congratulation about like, you know, we found this way out of this crisis and we haven't at all found a way out of the crisis. In Mm -hmm. fact, we're doing we're we're parasitizing the cities that that we exist in instead of providing an yeah providing education to you know, hope like ideally more and more people, mm-hmm. you know, that would be what you would think would be the goal. Um, but, you know, the other thing I really liked, uh, you know, to continue the uh, <laughs> admiration society theme of this <laughs> <Thank> interview, <you. laughs> uh, I'm here to ask you the tough questions. To right. <laughs> um, but the other thing I really liked about your book is like a lot of the a lot of the books that I've read about um, universities kind of go back to the say the 40s to the 70s which is like the the great years of everything you know union Mm -hmm. workers and and all these things and everything was good back then and then Mm. things started to go bad but you also have like a really good um handle and give your readers a really good handle on the the actual history of universities so like Mm. the, the phase you talk a little bit about the phase when universities were um you know just like gentlemen's clubs intended to uh you know ha- introduce elite men to one another and build those connections mm. and then a second phase where it did become a little bit more of a public service for purposes you know of of helping the military industrial complex <laughs> compete right, during right. the cold war but yeah do you want to just take us through uh the the those I guess, I don't know, three, four phases of, of, yeah. uh, of university. So real briefly. So, I mean, the, the, 
as you pointed out, trying to kind of challenge certain perceptions. There's this perception out here, just to give you some framing, that, um, you know, universities were these great spaces of democratic accessibility and knowledge and conversation and discourse and, and openness. And then when we get to the 1970s and neoliberal financialization, there is this, you know, decline and fall. And my point in this book is to say that there's there have been these capital corporate industrial uh, relationships that go back to universities foundings. My good colleague Craig Wilder talks about early on, you know, in the colonial era, universities were underwritten by slavery. You know, yes, the, yes, exactly. The, the exactly. world's original economy, yeah. you know, or the modern world. Sorry, the modern world's yeah, original the, economy. or the original global economy is right, right. So it's, it's the slave economy. So it's underwritten by that. Um, then when we get to um, the, the the U.S. Civil War in the 1860s, um, we have this moment of celebration of the democratization of higher education because of the Morrill Act of 1862 and 1890 and the creation of what's called the land-grant university, the public universities that are sponsored yeah. by, by the uh, federal government and state governments. And this is sure. argued, this is celebrated as being a democratization access to higher education for a greater swath of the public. Um, but what's rarely looked at is that underneath all this, the money... The, the Moral Act was used, it was argued that we'll, we have public land that will be given to states to then they can use to underwrite their endowments that will then fund these public land grant universities. But what's not discussed is that underneath this, the land that they were taking was not free. It was not public land. Yeah, it was how did we indigenous get all that land, land right? in the 1860s again? Right. Yeah, <laughs> it was indigenous land that was either just straight up jacked yeah. or these kind of um, irreputable uh, uh, deals treaties these yeah. treaties and, and, and suspect relationships that were created that then took the land and then transferred it to states to s- support these endowments in 1862 um and, and then we, a, there's a report you cite the land grab universities yes like they're huge uh, map and and a, amazing it's a great study project. yeah it's a great study um so the land uh land grab instead of land land grant university and then um we get to you know the um, we move we we move up again to another war, and this is the Cold War, uh, and uh, this is the period where you actually have you know even an increase in order in order to prepare not for the industrial economy but kind of what's becoming already the uh, the knowledge information economy that's already happening in the nineteen fifties and sixties. Another kind of increase of access to universities, but this is all this is also underwriting. Um, our attempts to ramp up our competitiveness, our meaning the governments, uh, the, the, the country's competitiveness in the military, industrial. And this is a piece that's taken out that was actually a, 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 a claim of the time, the military, industrial, academic complex. Right. That's not me making that up. That's a that's a phrase from that period. Yeah. The military, industrial, academic complex. We never talk about that piece. Because of the central role that universities played in supporting and underwriting this this new economy, um, so there's an opening up, um, but not for people of color. And this is the important <laughs> point about it: is that it's not until a decade later, and because of social movements, yeah. so student activism, SDS, Black Panther Party, uh, ethnic studies um, on campuses, opening up and pushing for even an even greater democratization of higher education. Um, that didn't just happen, but it happened because of the social movement push yeah. and, and universities were a part of that. But then only a decade later, by the time we get to the 70s, you already have the, the neo neoliberalism as a backlash 
yeah. to this democratization. So the yeah. public gets opened up. And so what does neoliberalism say? It says we're going to take the money from the public and transfer it to private entities. Yes. Right? Yes. And so it's, it's money. Strange. money's there. But yeah. once the public gets opened up, we're going to privatize the public. <laughs> so exactly. So so the you know the Cold War um, perks to being mm-hmm. a professor, for example, right. tenure and right. all these protections, those are all like people think, oh, that goes back all the way to the founding of the university. It doesn't. It's right. it's a Cold War thing. It's like mm-hmm. you know enlisting people into the uh, into the Cold War national uh, imperial project, right? right. And mm-hmm. and they and and that that doesn't just go for. Um, science and tech like that right. goes across the board for humanities mm-hmm. and social sciences too that's right um and, and, and it then, was an opportunity it was a moment where you know if you look at the aup the american association of university professors and parallel groups in other parts in other in other countries there was a push for democracy you know for for democratization for protections but in negotiations with the coal apparatus they limited it to to you know protections based on expertise Yes. They used the language of the Cold War to make a case for themselves, which was limiting, right? There were other, there were other opportunities. There were other alternatives on the board to saying, you know, not just for those of us with tenure, but for all workers, there should be the kind of protections. But the AUP and other professional organizations, they sliced off a piece of that politics to say, okay, it, you know, the Cold War apparatus is not going to allow that. So we'll just take a piece for ourselves. Yeah. Right. So, so many, so many of those decisions <laughs> led right. us to where we are now right let's just sell out i mean unions you know across <laughs> the board, right? if we just sell out the rest of society we can get something pretty sweet for ourselves. right right um speaking of backlash though because um you know this is a what you have here is you know i would call it a left-wing critique mm-hmm. of of universities and their behavior. But, you know, yesterday I was on, uh, I, I saw Twitter just gave me this, uh, you should check this out. I mean, it was Twitter or Google or something, but mm. uh, there was some kind of Fox news story about how Madison universe, John Madison university's training for undergrads, uh, you know, says that all white people are oppressors and, right. and this is too, everything's too woke. You, I think we mm-hmm. already used that word, but mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. so there's a, there's a real hatred for universities right. um, on the, you know, in the growing, you know, always, always a immensely supported right wing uh, movement and media uh, in the U S and mm-hmm. Canada. I mean, they, mm-hmm. they hate universities and that part of society hates universities. And, and in fact, they're like, there's a, a great university figure uh, at this prestigious uh, University of Toronto, who mm. you may have heard of, mm-hmm. Jordan Peterson, who mm-hmm. also works carefully with governments to try to defund and destroy universities. <laughs> it's pretty interesting, right? It's yep. Like, this yep. somebody whose whole career has. Been. But anyway, um, there's uh, so this right wing. So how do you, uh, you know, how how do we do this? Like, how do we handle this? Yeah, how do it's, we? It's tricky. It's very yeah. tricky. Um, <laughs> Because there's vitriol uh, uh, at the current state of univer- of high- at this current state of higher education, on both the right and the left. The the left is basically saying universities are not are not expansive enough in what they're doing. Yeah. And the right is saying they're too expansive. They're doing too much. Right. They're yeah. they're offering too many people in and too many ideas in. Um, right. And they're and undermining, they're, you know, the 1619 project and critical right. race. They're undermining the very basis of our of our national. Right. That we need uh, to go back to a core limited understanding of what universities and their values 
and good teaching and canon and the canon, a certain set of texts and ways of yeah. thinking. We need to return to that. So yeah. I just I liken it to, you know, one side is saying it's not expansive enough. One side is other side is saying it's too expansive. Mm-hmm. Um, that's it's not that's not perfect, but it's, a, you know, just to get a, yeah. a quick, you know, take a hot take, if you will. Um, but yeah. So, let's you know, because of my critiques, I, I do people on the right. They pick and they cherry pick pieces of what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As a way like to just that. say, yeah, let's attack and let's destroy them. Yeah. And and I'm not saying that at all. I very much am on the other side of saying that, you know, no, if we look at the pervasive nature of universities in terms of what they're actually doing in, the, in today's knowledge economy and, and the impact they're having on people's lives, they have a greater responsibility to serve the public. Yeah. Right. They need to be more expansive in what they teach and who they teach, but also because the wealth they're generating, the prosperity they're celebrating is coming from their relationships and actually their extraction of wealth from yeah. communities and, 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 and governments um, that's, that underwrite them, they therefore must be responsible and beholden to them in that, you know, for those very yeah. reasons. Yeah. And so um, when I get to that point, those on the right don't want to have that part of the conversation. <laughs> they just want the, the anger. They stop, and the they stop taking your calls. <laughs> right. So for example, a couple of years ago, there was actually um, in the U.S., there was a, um, a, a, a Senate um, hearing on university endowments, oh. um, whereby um, they were saying these multi-million dollar liberal woke machines are you know living off the fat of the land that we need to gut we need to police their their endowments i agree that endowments you know if you're making if you have a harvard has a 40 billion dollar endowment yeah that's absurd um that's absurd. and they're not doing but but you know so but the right their at- attack on that was just simply to say that we need to make them start doing the things we want them to do in terms of their teaching Right. Um, you know, we need, we need to put them under our, they're, they're these liberal bastions and we need to put them under their, under the, under our control. But if you look at what they're actually doing, what they're doing with that money is more aligned with the right, with the right in terms of, you know, Harvard is taking their $40 billion endowment and they're buying land in California to speculate on, on water rights. I think they're buying land in Brazil too. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think they're like a right. huge global landowner. Right. Because they're trying to, you know, speculate on what's going to be a huge struggle over land rights in the years to come because of, you know, environmental exploitation yeah. and, and climate change. And so they're using the $40 billion to engage in, in, in capital speculation. And these are things that that the right would agree with, you know, in a certain kind of way, you know, in a, in a certain kind of way. I'm arguing that these endowments should be used to support the public, that they should be put in community-oriented financial lending institutions, that there should be a mandate that, that a percentage of their endowment should be supporting the very public that they that they um, extract the money from because endowments are also tax-exempt. Um, <laughs> you know, that they should move the money from money market accounts uh, right. to, to, to community banks. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. these are the things I'm arguing for. The right would not agree with those solutions, with those orientations. Um, but they would agree with just simply the critique. And what I say in the book is that, you know, the right and others will say that the universities are full of tenured radicals and snowflakes. But yeah. if you look at their financial holdings and their foot, their their, their economic and physical footprint, um, those things tell a very different story that maybe there is a so-called, maybe slightly, and this is only slightly, liberal bent in the faculty ranks. But even that's not necessarily true. If you look at the no, school, the I mean, business which school, do, it, it's the only, they only they cherry pick the departments, right? right. So like mm-hmm. nobody looks at the econo- like the economics department is right. not a bastion of any liberalism. Right. Economics, uh, engineering, even, engineering, even the uh, the sports, physical education, yeah. kinesiology, 
these departments are not full of you know left wing uh, snowflakes. And then and, even tr- more traditional, like if you took like, English philosophy right. history, like mm-hmm. traditional humanities, there's that's right. There are yeah. there's plenty. There are plenty of those who think in a diversity of political ways. Um, but at the other side, if you and if you look at the administrative class, yeah, in right. universities, it's all the way to the right. No matter where they come from, right. you, you could be a complete radical coming mm-hmm. from, you know, ethnic studies. But the minute you get into an admin position, and it's not so much that you individually become that, no. but no. you're serving at the at the to the pleasure of the of the university interest, exactly, which mm-hmm. is focused on different ways to monetize. You know, how much of this university experience can we monetize? Can we financialize? Can we liquidate? That is the current move uh, move, move right now. Yeah. Everything from the you know seeing the student as a consumer, the yeah. alumni as a potential shareholder, um, to the land as a real estate deal or as a threat to the brand. What are the ways in which we can financialize and and orient ourselves around all assets as an economic um, for their economic capacity? So Yarden Katz, who's been on this podcast before, he wrote a book called Artificial Whiteness. And I mm. think I read this passage before on the on this podcast, but okay. I think you'll find it interesting. He, mm. He's talking about Harvard. Mm-hmm. Harvard owns not only hotels in the Boston area and right. vineyards in California and Washington State, but timber plantations in New Zealand, right. farmlands in South Africa, South America, Russia, and Ukraine. Mm. Uh, by one estimate, Harvard has spent about a billion dollars on farmlands in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Um, Harvard is estimated to own 300,000 hec- hectares of land in the Cerrado region, mm. neighboring on the Amazon, and which has been gradually destroyed mm-hmm. to <laughs> make room for agribusiness. And That's it goes right. on. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah, Harvard. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, it's easy to beat up on Harvard, but I want to take it back also to public universities. So, like, for yeah. example, Good. Arizona State University, in my, in my case, um, because, you know, it's the wild, wild west. So real estate is the major driver. If you're a real estate developer, you can pretty much do whatever you want. Uh, right. You know, I'm, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm being flip, but the point is, is that there, there are few protections or there's little oversight over real estate in the West um, to a certain level. And I think you can also say the same thing in, in Van, places like Vancouver. Um, so the point that I'm making here is that um, when, there, when the, when the, government contribution to higher education shrunk and schools in the Southwest of the places began to look at ways to financial financialize their assets. Um, land became a primary deal. And ASU is a perfect example of this. They realized that they, they were sitting on this extremely now because of this new financialization, lucrative land that was protected by what we call the board of trustees, the board of regents, uh, the yeah. board of visitors or alders, um, this is the board that governs state schools. Yeah. Um, so it's called the board of governors here. Uh, right. York, anyway. Okay. And so that land is, is owned by the board of governors or the board of trustees. Yeah. And so this is property. This is property. This is property tax exempt land. So what they decided to do was that they say, okay, we are going to lease this land to yeah. private companies. Right. So for example, state farm insurance, their regional headquarters is the biggest development in the state of Arizona, and it sits on ASU property tax exempt land. The biggest development in the state is ta- property tax exempt because it sits on university land. I want people to just let that marinate for a minute, okay? And so the way this works is that so instead of having to pay the property tax, the university charges State Farm and other companies 
a slightly lower tax, a slightly lower fee that they then use to do whatever they want to with without the oversight of the public. So that things, that decisions that normally have to be voted on in a democratic way are now even further sheltered in this manner so that university can do what they want. So for example, with ASU, what they did was they hired um, Herm, if you know about American football, um, Herm Edwards was the former uh, head coach of the professional team, the New York Jets. Usually uh, colleges can't compete with the with the salaries that you know professional coaches can are offered, but ASU could because it had this money that it used from these land deals, these you know these tax shelters to be able to bring him in to pay for a shiny new football stadium with the money that was accrued from the the the, the fees that they were able to charge, you know, uh, uh, State Farm and hotels. They have retirement community developers on their land. So all these ways they've been able to monetize this land. And on top of that, they also, they they don't have the capacity. State schools don't have the capacity to trade on the elitism of private universities, right? That we, right. our brand is based on exclusivity. We yes. want we want to have a, a, a rejection rate of, you know, 80%. Yeah. Well, in, public schools, in, don't they in, don't have that. I don't know if this is true in, in uh, the U.S., but in Canada, a high rejection rate is called excellence in the university right. context. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and so a- ASU and other public schools, they don't have that. So what they did is they said, okay, you know, ASU is the biggest uh, university in the country. 50,000 50, 50, students on its main campus, 75,000 students on its, on its five main campuses. So they said, you know, our approach is going to be we are going to pack in these campuses with as many students as we can. So we're, we're going to deal in volume. And not only are we going to take more tuition dollars, but we are going to tell the corporate partners, you know, listen, you, we have a captive consumer audience. Yes. So we are going to bring in food and retail franchises, and we're going to engage in these contracts. We're going to bring us money because we're going to, in exchange for these, this, these, this money in this contract, we're going to hand over to you all of these students that will be contracted to pay you the money. So if you live, so we're going to require students to live on campus for a certain number of years. And while they live on campus, they will have to get, for example, a food service contract. They will have to live in these dorms that are built by these private contractors and developers. So there become these, 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 these captive markets that's created on this land. So the land becomes uh, an entirely new real estate deal on top of the laboratories talked about with the knowledge economy, they become land deals for retail, for construction, um, and for these other kinds of arrangements. And so yeah. that's what's happening on public universities. So schools like Arizona State University, the University of Virginia, um, the University of Michigan, they become these real estate deals for uh, for value capture in terms of these laboratories these food retailers, these construction companies, these landscaping companies for maintaining the land. Um, this is what, so, so for example, um, uh, Wexford, this is a company that solely focuses on development for higher education. They build out what are called these knowledge communities. Oh, so they're like a, yeah, a developer, but yeah. like a specialized. Uh, but they only work on higher education campuses oh. because it's that lucrative. And they, and, and, and not all, but many parts of their, of their deals are covered by the university tax shelter, by the university tax exemption. So they become <laughs> these other forms of tax sheltering.
So there's a case from uh, from Canada, Nova Scotia College of Art and Design. Mm. It was in the news back in um, in June. Okay. In the news here, and the president uh, who came from Ireland, so the, you know the presidential search hired in 2019, mm-hmm. and immediately, uh, you know, she she starts off uh, her job. This is in the Globe and Mail. Um, okay. Uh, June. 7th, 2021. Inside NSCAD's real estate route, ousted president battled with board over Halifax properties internal emails show. Mm. So the deal works like this. Let me read you the paragraph. The paragraph is pretty pretty shocking. So there's a former treasurer of the board. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, And um, he's Okay, there's there's a member of the board uh, who's part of this group called Armor Group which mm. is a real estate mm-hmm. something developer of some kind. And this, um, so the deal that they were seeking was that, um, okay, where is it? So you're conceded. We've done work with the company. The deal is, okay. The deal is that they sell, there's two <laughs> buildings. They're supposed to sell them to Armor Group at a very low um, price. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would sell Armor Group two of its oldest properties on Granville Street in Halifax and pay the developer to build a new main campus next to the Art Gallery of Nova Scotia, then rent that space back from Armor Group mm-hmm. while allowing the developer to build private condominiums on top. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> the, prof- mm-hmm. the president was asking a lot of questions about that. And then the president was <laughs> let go. <laughs> wow. Yeah. 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 And it's so what consistent is. what you're seeing all over the country. So, for example, just to give you another example, um, um, New York Times had a story just recently about the fact that during the pandemic uh, at the University of Georgia, uh, they, you know, they were they were going remote during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But this private um, developer reminded in 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 hidden course in correspondence that were revealed, it reminded the university that it couldn't go fully um, remote because it had a, it had entered into an, a contract with this developer that a certain that that the university would fill a certain number of beds in this development with students. So it was under contract to make sure right. that it couldn't go fully remote. So we're talking about the safety. Of the public and during the pandemic that because of this contract, it couldn't go fully remote because it, it, it was under contract to provide a certain number of students for this private apartment development. And so this it, for any of you out in the audience, remind, this reminds you of the private prison prisons. Companies, exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That you have to that the that, that the uh, the wealth and the the prosperity of these prisons is based on supplying a certain number of prisoners to wow. these holdings. And so this is a similar arrangement you see here with this case. Um, or, for example, another university um, celebrated Aramark. Aramark is one of the multinational North American food service companies. So yeah. It celebrated, you know, this gift um, that Aramark was offering, you know, uh, a new building. But the, the, in the fine print, it showed that, well, that building was actually going to be paid back by forcing students to pay an additional food service fee. Um yeah you know, to underwrite that building, even if they didn't have a, a contract, even if they didn't have a, even if they didn't buy food on campus, even if they didn't have a food contract, there would be a fee ch- attached to their general student fee to help pay back the money that went into building this building. Right. So these are the kinds of arrangements that are going on all in the name of the public good. So we look from the public yeah. eye, look at these shiny new buildings, look at these laboratories, look at these facilities, 
Um, you know, what would the city be if the university wasn't here? Right. We don't have any factories. This place would be nothing without it. But the mm-hmm. understory is saying, but this 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 prosperity is being directly extracted from the debt that comes from yeah. students and their families and also the taxes and the resources that are not, not being paid in um, from the public. Yeah. I mean, so you so Pennsylvania, Philadelphia is a perfect example of this. UPenn, you know, has like a 30 billion dollar endowment while it's public schools in the, in the in the city of Philadelphia have asbestos in the walls. And people are saying, okay, so what? What's the connection? But (laughs) the University of Pennsylvania, Drexel, Temple, they don't pay property taxes. What do property taxes go to? Property taxes go to the public schools. So there's a direct relationship here between the prosperity being celebrated by the universities and the poverty of public facilities in these cities. All right, let's let's conclude with our with this backlash because we, I I checked with you to make sure we both watched uh, the Netflix series The Chair. <laughs> yeah, and uh, there were things I liked about The Chair. I liked mm-hmm. the you know she walks in and the dean immediately says you know enrollment crisis, budget crisis. I mean this is exactly what everybody is hearing all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're faculty, right? It's like mm-hmm. uh, the apocalypse is coming. Um, and she's, you know, her job is to try to get enrollments, but then her love interest is, uh, you know, he, he's talking historically about fascism. Mm. Um, and he says he does a Hitler salute as like an example of something fascists do, Mm -hmm. uh, students record it, put it online. And then there's a student uh, protest movement against him. Mm. Uh, that happens and my you know i i think my problem was i I was like in there's no way that like while while capturing a lot of while capturing a lot of truth in in some of the elements in terms of the faculty Mm -hmm. uh life they they did the students really dirty Mm -hmm. and students don't behave like that student activists don't behave like that students don't students have that don't have the power to get uh, professors in trouble like that, mm-hmm. um, and it goes on. T- tell me, t- tell me your uh, thoughts too. Yeah, so my take on the chair is that on on one level, it does a great job of talking about what we're talking, what we've been talking about for the last you know um, you know half hour or so is this this financialization that enrollments are down. We got to figure out ways to make money. We got to attract students. Um, <laughs> David David Duchovny. <laughs> right, right. We got to bring it. We got to re, we got to re, re, rebrand the institution or the or the departments. Um, there's there's less concern with with you know teaching for teaching you know knowledge for knowledge's sake. It has to have a career orientation. Um, economics departments are getting all the money, so it does a good job of talking about that. It talks about you know the the, the plight in some ways. I mean, it was supposed to be centered around you know this chair who's a woman of color, yeah. um, an Asian American woman, um, and then also you know a, a black woman, a junior faculty member who's struggling to navigate a world that's primarily dominated by white men. Um, that are holding including, on, to life. including literature by white men. Like I, mm-hmm. I was, I was a little bit like, why doesn't, why doesn't Yasmin read, uh, you know, mm. some non, <laughs> like, why is she reading Melville anyway? Right, right, that's right. So it tells those stories, but it wraps it in kind of a so, it, you know, for the people, the populace were like, yeah, this is wrong. Um, yeah. Let's let's do something, but it it wraps that kind of critique in a larger kind of um, what I would call white populist. Um, framework mm-hmm. is saying that yeah. the reason why this is such a mess is because of these bungling elite 
yeah. professors and students yes. that are out of touch with reality, right? They're, yeah. they're falling asleep in faculty meetings and they don't know what's going on in the real world. And yeah. students at the drop of a dime, they're, they're storming the Bastille of the, <laughs> the administration right. building, you know, because somebody was mean to them. And so now they're protesting and organizing and cancel culture rules the day. And so now this white professor, this white male professor, um, who is also a bungling, but, you know, he's, he's, you know, he's well-intended. He's just, he's just making mistakes. Lovable loser archetype. Yeah. Right. His, his job is under threat because these students of color, their feelings were hurt and they had the power and cancel culture is going to ruin, you know, even what we do have. Yeah. And so that would never be the case in a university. And, and and some people that I talk to on Twitter, they're like, you know, this that professor would have got a promotion, you know, <laughs> for for making that mistake. And he would have the waggled the wagons would have circled around him. Exactly. Um, they would have used the language of academic freedom. And they would have used him. the student code of conduct. Like they right. would have gone after the students who recorded it and who made a meme out of it. And right. he could have talked he would have talked about how he was his reputation was damaged and he he was hurt by that. That's right. And um, the students would have been attacked. Yeah. And um, the chair, as a woman of color, uh, she was attacked somewhat in the in the, in the show. But I think a, a, significant, a much more significant portion of the attack would have fall, also fallen on her right. for not doing a job, a good job of managing students, student unrest and this, you know, this uh, media, I guess, attention, mm-hmm. if you will. Um, yeah, so I think you're right. It does some good things right, but it for me it wraps it all up in this kind of white populism, whereby the um, I say as I say as well that you know the students were purposely caricatured as kind of yeah. these woke radical woke radicals as a way to attack anti racist organizing on That's real right. campuses in real time. Yeah, and, and the and issue that was the they focus. chose, you know, it was interesting because the issue they chose was that he said you know hail Hitler in his mm-hmm. thing, right? And it's like they're not. You know, they're not, there's no, sh- there's no police shootings in that town. There's right. no, you know, there's no prison nearby. I bet there is, you know, mm-hmm. there's just so, there's so much, like, it's just so abstracted from mm-hmm. the real concerns of students it, and of their, their of, communities, you know, America. Yeah. And, and, this, and this gets back to my, my point about the book is that, yeah, in this, in this fictional town, there are no, you know, there's no policing, you know, police shootings or, 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 or campus police surveillance of students yeah. and communities, there are no work. There are no um, non-faculty workers on campus. They're invisible. Yeah, the IT guy. There's the right. IT guy. But in terms of like or, you know food yeah. service or groundskeepers, you don't see anybody right. doing that work, and they're most, usually almost always of color. Yeah, that do that work. There's yeah. no union organizing for graduate students. There's one yeah. graduate student, um, an, an Asian American woman as well. You know, yeah. struggling to maintain her 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 sanctity and survival. But there's no graduate student organizing for better wages. Um, there, you know, there's no issues, um, around, you know, the history of slavery in universities. Yeah. They um, kind of draw, they kind of put all of that, uh, burden onto the black character. Right. And she, she kind of says it in a couple of speeches, but it's, it was just like, oh man, you know, you, you didn't, you couldn't dramatize that, you know, or. Yeah. So it's, it's all, you know, it, it, it all gets kind of abbreviated and caricatured in individual personalities instead of talking about real life issues and how they shape people's personalities and experiences. Um, So the net effect I thought was like, it's, it's recognizable enough that I think a lot of academic types will like it Mm -hmm. um, and see, you know, some of the, some of the dysfunctionalities and, and so on. But, 
but the net effect I think is bad in the sense that, you know, you come away with this cancel culture mm -hmm. fear, like the big, and you know, the big problem is cancel culture. Ultimately it's this right. mob right. of students that are going to get right. you, you know, your cuddly boyfriend, you know, the mm -hmm. boyfriend character. And, and, it's, and for me, the biggest, the big issue is that the underlying, like the, the students and the faculty are always the butt of the joke. And that's fine. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's part, it's a partial comedy, right? But the underlying consequence of that is that it reinforces the idea of how much higher education is an ivory tower, how much of yes. it is, is out of touch with the real world. Yeah. And what my book shows is that that's a wonderful myth. Yeah. But if we look at cities and college towns, um, the ivory tower is dead. Yeah. Higher education is fully embedded within the political economy and social conditions of everyday life. They're, they are everywhere. If we're talking about things like neighborhood, like land values, living wages, intellectual property rights, healthcare, wealth redistribution, policing, and not just college towns, but cities, higher education sits at the fulcrum of all of these wide-ranging issues that we don't associate with higher education. They're facilitating all these key issues because of the role they play in managing these issues. And you will not get that from the chair at all. And you mm -hmm. won't get that from public conversation. And I'm hoping that this book will allow us to, to, to um, reinsert higher education in its rightful place at the center of these conversations. Yeah. Yeah. It has to become a political issue. Right. Not a subject of comedy or not just a subject of comedy because comedy right. can do good things oh yeah for know, sure but I, I just i wish it would i wish it dealt with these issues as well that it's not yeah. just this kind of like you know tweed leather elbow patch environment right <laughs> yeah it's 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 a it's a work the higher the campus is a workshop exactly. right it's a shop floor for most it's the biggest employer in most cities in the country it's a shop floor it's a political boss the decisions yeah. that the university interests guide governmental decisions for cities at large. Yeah. It is the it is the it's a healthcare apparatus. Most people get their healthcare taken care of either at you know at, at university affiliated hospitals. Right. So so this is what I'm saying. This is what I'm talking yeah. about. It's a it's a landlord. Either universities own the land where you where you um sit, or because of a university's presence, your property values. Or your rental your rental costs go up because of their presence. Yeah. Um, when uh, the uh, Princeton University's uh, residents in the in the neighborhoods of Princeton of the neighborhood of Witherspoon Jackson realized their property taxes were going up because they were sitting next to a uni to the Princeton University buildings, yeah. and the and the cost was being passed on to them. Yeah. Um, they sued Princeton University and won an eighteen million dollar lawsuit because they exposed how their property taxes and rental costs were going up because they were sitting next to these property tax exempt uh, uh, university buildings that were reaping millions of dollars in royalties from Eli Lilly. <laughs> and so one of the plaintiffs- Eli in that, Lilly in, being a private health- uh, Pharmaceutical company. Pharmaceutical company. Right. Yeah. And so when they found this out, one of, the, one of the plaintiffs in the case was so disgusted, he dismissed Princeton as a hedge fund that conducts classes. <laughs> Right, that's very good. That's so, very so good. this is the reality of these campuses. Yes, they're they they might have bungling faculty members that go to sleep during faculty meetings and have yeah. you know students that go overboard, but they're also places of workers, they're places of healthcare, they're places of land control, and, and we need to talk about those things too. And and those can be funny. Those can be the butt of the joke as well. We can make comedies about that too.
Exactly. <laughs> I had an idea for a TV uh, miniseries about like uh, basically York University because York University has these strikes every few years where mm. the teaching assistants go on strike and there's a very militant union. Faculty are in a union too. A lot mm-hmm. of Canadian faculties are in unions. So right. I, I thought that would be a a great uh, miniseries, but um, but I, I haven't had anyone. I, I try to pitch it to people just casually, and everyone right. kind of rolls their eyes. Maybe after. <laughs> well, a, a great, a great, a great comedy for me would be the ways in which administrators hustle yeah. and move to 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 create revenue streams to make money, yeah, while still trying to present the university as simply a place that teaches classes. Yeah. Like that story would be hilarious. So maybe I'm, maybe I'm biased. It'd be dark though, you know. <laughs> It'd be pretty dark, like really cynical, uh, like satire, right? Yeah. Like, office, but just to see that, just to see them space. trying to like keep all those balls in the air, juggling all those balls in the air. Yeah. You know, to say, oh, we're just a school, we're teaching school, and behind the scenes doing all these these crazy de- de- land deals and and labor deals. That you know that would be that satire would be interesting. All right, Davarian Baldwin, thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. I had a great time. Thanks. Thanks.